Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist's Angry Feminist Book Club. Welcome! I am just so excited to get started on this new Patreon journey. I'm sure there's going to be lots of more interesting things added as we go along for the book club and for Patreon in general. I've already received some really good ideas from listeners like you all who have reached out to me, and I really, really appreciate it. I love knowing what you want to hear because especially for something like Patreon where you're going to be paying for it. I really want to give you what you want to hear. So please email me, neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. DM me on Instagram, angryneighborhoodfeminist. Those are the best ways to get hold of me, chat with me, let me know what you want to hear. And I, I just can't wait to get all of this started. I love to read so much. I was raised by a couple of readers. It was actually a joke in my family because my dad would not go anywhere without a book. And I'm sure this really was because of the social anxiety and social awkwardness that he had because he would bring a book, whether it be the doctor's office or family Christmas. You know, it really didn't matter where we were. He brought his book with him. And my mom whenever she had free time, was reading a book. She was always reading in bed before she went to sleep. And at the cabin, you know, we didn't really have cable TV and things like that at our lake house. We liked to be outside. So my only real form of like entertainment was music or reading a book. And my mom and I would just lay on the floaties in the lake for hours reading whatever book. And I would always, you know, get super, super invested in whatever I was reading. And I really liked to read like... I like to see how fast I could finish a book and see how big of a book I could read or how mature of a book I could read and things like that. And so literature has always been really, really important to me. I've taken up a lot of the same habits as my parents. You know, now it's more so I bring a notebook around with me everywhere and one of my pens so I can take notes wherever I am to get a little bit of work done for the show. But before then, I always had a book with me in my bag. So I never had to sit around and feel awkward in a situation where I was waiting or anything like that. But I never took it as far as my dad. I've never brought a book to a party, at least not on purpose. So to kick off the Angry Feminist Book Club, we are covering the book Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo by Zora Neale Hurston. But before I talk about the actual text of the book, I was really, really fascinated 
by the story of its author, Zora Neale Hurston, and I really wanted to share her story with you. I found a documentary on PBS that was all about her life story, which was called Zora Neale Hurston Claiming a Space. If you want to watch it, I highly recommend it. It's super in-depth. I took a lot of notes on it, um, but I also you know, looked at a lot of you know, history.com articles, and I always kind of go on my little like side googs of different events that are mentioned or different people that are mentioned and things like that in order to give us the best context possible, especially because with the documentary on PBS, they kind of talk to us like we knew who all of these great anthropologists were for the most part. And I was like, I don't know who these people are. So there was a lot of sidetracking and things like that. But okay, with all of that, let's get into the story of Zora. She was the fifth of eight children born to John and Lucy Ann Hurston on January 7th, 1891. She was a Capricorn queen. She was born in Alabama and all four of her grandparents had been formerly enslaved. Her dad, John, was a Baptist preacher like his father before him, and he was also a sharecropper, but he eventually became a carpenter. Her mother, Lucy Ann, worked as a school teacher. The family moved to Eatonville, Florida when Zora was three years old, and Eatonville was one of the first all-black towns incorporated in the United States. The city was named after Josiah C. Eaton, one of a small group of white landowners who was willing to sell sufficient land to black Americans to incorporate as a black town. Zora always described Eatonville as home and would even claim it as her birthplace at times. Her dad was elected mayor of Eatonville in 1897, and in 1802, he was called to serve as the minister of its largest church, the Macedonia Missionary Baptist. I can imagine that the Hurston family was very popular and beloved in this town. In her life, Zora often wrote her stories taking place in Eatonville, a place where black people could live as they desired, independent of white society. When she was in elementary school, some northern school teachers came, and one of them had given Zora several books that opened her mind to literature. She describes this literary awakening within her as a kind of birth. Growing up, she loved to hear the stories of the men sitting on the porch of the general store. Later in life, she noted the vulnerability and emotion shown through these men when telling the stories, and it was that aspect that made her invested in what they were saying. This shows that she had an anthropological spirit from the start. In the beginning of the documentary, one of the historians or talking heads says something that really resonated with me because it draws from such a modernized idea, but they said that Zora really saw how much Black lives truly matter and the importance of their stories being told. Even when she was at a very, very young age, she was very compelled and drawn by the story of the history of where she came from. She would hang around just out of sight to hear what they were saying. Once she was caught, the grown-ups would try to shoo her away, but that only made her want to know what they were saying even more. She was described as being nosy, and she would drive her father nuts with her hard-headedness. She was also referred to as her mother's daughter. She was incredibly close to Lucianne, and wrote that she was the kind of mother who gave her children permission to question, dream, and be artistic. She said, Mama exhorted her children at every opportunity to jump at the sun. We might not land on the sun, but at least we would get off the ground. Unfortunately, her mother passed away in 1904 when Zora was only 13 years old. She wrote, That hour became my wandering. Mama died at sundown and changed the world. 
Her father remarried the following year to a woman named Maddie Moog. This was considered very scandalous at the time, as it was rumored that they had had a sexual relationship before Zora's mother passed away. The happiness that I assumed Zora felt in her childhood seemed to dissipate after her father remarried. He and her new stepmother sent her away to join her other two siblings at the Baptist boarding school in Jacksonville. They eventually stopped paying her tuition partway through the year, and she had to work scrubbing the floors to finish out the term. After that, she was forced to leave the school. Now, on her own, she spent the next five years going from house to house, staying with relatives and friends, and found comfort nowhere. She wrote at this time, I was not Zora of Orange County anymore. I was now a little colored girl. I found it out in certain ways, in my heart as well as in the mirror. In 1916, she was hired as a maid for the lead singer of the Gilbert and Sullivan Theater Company. Arthur Sullivan is responsible for writing operas such as The Pirates of Penzance and W.S. Gilbert wrote The Liberati, or text for all of the songs. It also seems that by the time Zora began working for them, they had already garnered most of their living success, so she was working for pretty famous people at the time. Thankfully, she was able to return to school in 1917, attending the Morgan Academy, the high school division of Morgan State University, which is a historically black college in Baltimore. In order to secure quality, free high school education, the 26-year-old decided to claim 1901 as her birth year, making her only 16 in the eyes of the school. And this is crazy because it actually, I just realized this in recently finishing the end of the notes, I'm pretty sure on the Wikipedia page it says that she was born in 1901, either that or definitely Alice Walker would write 1901 as her birth year on her headstone at some point. So that's interesting. She really like was able to pull off this lie about her age for like the rest of her life. She graduated high school in 1918, with everyone thinking that she was 17 years old, but she was actually 27. To support herself during this time, Zora worked as a waitress in a nightclub and as a manicurist in a black-owned barbershop that only served white patrons in the summer of 1918, right before attending Howard Prep School in Washington, D.C., then attending Howard University. Howard was nicknamed the Black Harvard for its prestige and history of black students coming from the school. And this was a really wonderful environment for Zora. It seems like she kind of got the feel of Eatonville back a little bit. She loved rubbing elbows with other black students who were as smart and creative as she was and saw the celebration of black people really on display at Howard University. There, she even joined their theater group, the Howard Players. Also in school, she became one of the earliest initiates of the all-black sorority at Howard University, Zeta Phi Beta, and co-founded The Hilltop, the university's student newspaper, along with Louise Eugene King. In school, she began to be more interested in the, quote, New Negro Movement, which was shedding the old narrative of the black person being enslaved and changing it into showing the importance of black history and culture. At Howard, she also took courses in Spanish, English, Greek, as well as public speaking, and earned an associate's degree in 1920. She wrote a short story, John Redding Goes to Sea, in 1921, which earned her a membership to the Allen Locke Literary Club, The Stylus. On May 1, 1925, Zora won four literary awards hosted by Opportunity Magazine for this short story. 
This event was a who's who of the Harlem Renaissance in one room. And guess what? Zora took home the most prizes of the night. She won second prize for her short story, Spunk, and second place finish in drama for her play, Colorstruck. She also received two honorable mentions. And let's just say, Zora turned heads, to say the very least. The winners of the night would soon be forgotten, and all attention was set on Zora Neale Hurston. We know by now, through learning a little bit about Zora's childhood, that she wasn't one to hide in the shadows. She's loud, she's nosy, she's opinionated and a badass, and she knows it. So she waltzes into the after party, packed with writers and art patrons, both black and white, whips a scarf around her neck, and yells out the name of her title-winning play, Colorstruck! I just terrified Dorothy when I did that. Much like the way Dorothy just responded to me, the entrance literally stopped the party and everyone whipped their heads around to take a look at her. But you know what? This was Zora's intention to begin with. Zora kind of reminds me of my childhood self a little bit. Hello, I'm in the room. Look at me. Look at me. Who wants to talk about me? (laughs) By all accounts, Zora was the kind of person that talked to you like you were the only person in the world that mattered in that moment. She was someone you could find yourself divulging your secrets and insecurities to, even after just meeting. And that's something that I really tried to be as a person myself and really, really cherish as a quality in other people as well. She also met Langston Hughes that night, who, by the way, I find incredibly attractive. And he was a Missouri-born poet, activist, novelist, playwright, and columnist. He was one of the earliest innovators of jazz poetry and is known as one of the leaders of the Harlem Renaissance. The two would be longtime friends after their first meeting this night. Alice Walker once said of the pair, It is so easy to see how and why they would love each other. Each was to the other an affirming example of what black people could be like. Wild, crazy, creative, spontaneous, at ease with who they were, and funny. That night, she also got a job offer from Fanny Hurst, a Jewish-American novelist who was held in very high regard, who wanted Zora to be her personal secretary. And on top of all of that, the cherry on top of this amazing, life-changing night for Zora, she was approached by one of the trustees for Barnard College of Columbia University named Annie Nathan Meyer, who offered her acceptance to the school. Annie was a promoter of higher education for women, but paradoxically was against women's suffrage. Riddle me that. When attending Bernard, she was attending an elite world of women's education, and she would be the only black student there. Also, she was still pretending to be about 10 years younger than she actually was. Because of her age, race, and status, she also didn't have the advantage of the other students whose parents were sending them money, And Zora probably felt like she didn't have the luxury of time in her education either, being 10 years older than everybody else. I know I would feel a little bit strange entering maybe like a a freshman college or sophomore college class even because I'm like, oh my God, I feel so much older than everybody else. But hey, she pulled it off well and she also seems to have this attitude of like not giving a fuck. Though it seems that she definitely felt awkward and it was difficult for her at times, she writes about coming to Bernard saying... Through it all, I'll remain myself. She decided that she couldn't hide the fact that she sticks out like a sore thumb, and she would allow her classmates to view her as special or even exotic. But Zora said she never let anyone make her feel lesser than. 
I'm sure that's a lot easier to avoid showing than avoid feeling. That was some verbiage that was used in the PBS documentary when someone was like, well, she never let anyone make her feel less than or she never let them make her feel badly about herself. But there's a lot of instances where she is made to feel badly about herself for some of the things that people say to her and the way that they treat her. And I think that this would be no different, especially with her being, you know, younger than she's going to be when I discuss some of the things that happened to her later on. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, she outwardly acted like everything was okay, but inwardly really struggled with being so different than everybody else. I I can't imagine that type of feeling of ostracism. And then also feeling possibly like you're on display for your classmates. Like, are these people really your friends? Are they just curious about you? It all just seems really icky to me. And I found the way that they phrased that to be very, very interesting in the documentary. And I I paused for a second and had to think about it a little bit. She said that she even became a bit of a celebrity on campus, writing that she felt like Bernard's sacred black cow. See, this is what I mean. At first, she had planned to study to become a teacher, which was a very traditional path, specifically for black women at this time, but she had so much creative energy that she felt she needed to share. It was also at Bernard that she would meet her lifelong influence, Franz Boas. This guy is a big deal. He has been nicknamed the father of American anthropology, and he wanted Zora to conduct ethnographic research with him. Also, when I googled him, I found out that we share a birthday, which I love. Boaz was one of the most prominent opponents of the then-popular ideologies of scientific racism, which held the idea that race is a biological concept and that human behavior is best understood through the typology of skeletal anatomy. This is something that's been discussed on the show before in the past, that there was this medical and scientific belief that by measuring the skulls and the skeletal region of you know different races' heads, you could determine their intellect, their civility, so on and so forth. Boaz also introduced the idea of cultural relativism, which holds that cultures cannot be objectively ranked as higher or lower or better or more correct, but that all humans see the world through the lens of their own culture and judge it according to their own culturally acquired norms. Before Franz Boas, anthropologist Lewis Henry Morgan argued that human societies could be classified into categories of evolution on a scale of progression, which ranged from savagery to barbarianism to civilization. And that would split the human race into sections, savage, barbarian, or civilized. His indicator to create this scale was technology. Boaz felt the opposite of Morgan and went out to prove that biological race was not immutable and that human conduct resulted from nurture, not nature. He argued that the world was full of distinct cultures, not societies whose evolution could be measured by how much or little a person had, and they couldn't be compared. In his work, Boaz fought the discrimination against immigrants, black Americans, and indigenous peoples of the Americas. Many people of those cultures also began to study under him. He has been described as an important anti-racist. Many American anthropologists adopted his agenda for social reform, and his theories of race continue to be popular subjects for anthropologists today. Zora went on to receive her BA in anthropology in 1928 when she was 37 years old. Then, Zora decided to head to Harlem and do some study into the culture there. 
Boaz was aware of the notion that a lot of other anthropologists were studying the sizes of different races' heads in regards to their intellect and status in life. He wanted Zora to go out onto the street corners of Harlem and ask if she could measure strangers' heads with one of those weird, long, tong-looking devices, right? In the PBS documentary, historians and other talking heads marveled that she was able to get other black people comfortable enough with her to do something they knew was bad news. This was something that had been going on for a long, long time. So just having anyone on the street asking to measure your head was a sign that they were up to no good. In the end, the study proved that the skull size and shape has nothing to do with racial differences and hierarchy. After graduating, Zora met another person who had become an influence in her life for quite some time. She met a woman named Charlotte Osgood Mason, who was a fellow anthropologist, literary patron, and socialite who showed interest in Zora's work. Mason used her wealth to support literary artists and writers of the Harlem Renaissance, and she would support Zora's career from 1928 to 1932 as she began her research into African-American folklore and culture in the Deep South, Haiti, and Jamaica. Zora signed a contract and became an employee of Mason's. The contract stated that she could not share material with anyone else and that she couldn't publish anything without Mason's approval. This agreement was wonderful, but it was also stressful, as Mason was very stingy with the money she gave her and made her keep close records of every penny she spent, even on things like toilet paper and menstrual products. Usually in letters, Zora and others who worked under Mason would refer to her as godmother, but in one letter to her friend Langston Hughes, she described her as the Park Avenue dragon. Mason also tried to direct her work. She had a very distinct idea of what she wanted her work to look like, and it was Zora's job to go out and collect, but still, I don't like the way that Mason would go about almost like chastising Zora for the way she went about her work at times. It didn't seem like a super healthy relationship. And Mason was a really weird character because she really loved black people and people of color and believed that they were the key to the next generation. And this was something that was really revolutionary at the time. And she really did seem pretty beloved by a lot of the people that worked for her and the people that she worked with because she really saw the value in the black community and other minority races and wanted to preserve their culture and learn from them. But she also had this diluted notion that she had an authentic understanding of what black culture was about and always looked at her subjects as something soon to be extinct rather than something that was growing and ever changing. They say she was quite a handful and she was known to have bursts of angry outbursts. Zora once wrote to Langston Hughes, It destroys my self-respect and utterly demoralizes me for weeks. I do care for her deeply. That is why I can't endure to get at odds with her. I don't want anything but to get at my work with the least trouble possible. While working for Mason, she was also trying to please Franz Boas, who was still her academic advisor as she was working toward her undergraduate degree. She would write him little letters and be like, by the way, I'm working on something for you, but you've got to wait until my contract is up with Mason before I can let you have it. She then went back to Eatonville and other towns in Florida for Mason at a time when Jim Crow laws were very stiff and being a black woman meant certain danger. 
She rented a car under Boaz's name, which he didn't love, and went out and bought herself a chrome revolver, which she wore on her hip like Annie Oakley. She said, if I had not learned how to take care of myself in these circumstances, I could have been maimed or killed on most any day of the several years of my research work. She also brought along with her a film camera, making her one of the earliest black female film documentarians as well. When she wasn't successful at reaching people in Florida at first, she wasn't able to collect any stories or songs from any of them, she decided that she needed to try a new approach with this crowd. She discovered that though she was from there, she had left and become educated, when these people hadn't been given the same opportunity. She had to find a way to stop being an outsider and become one of them again. Langston Hughes was in Mobile, Alabama that July, and the two joined each other for fieldwork. He told her that he would chat with his guys back in New York and to let him know when she was done with her research. Maybe they could help her write the reports. Then she went to Alabama to meet Kosala and begin working on the book Barracoon. She was compelled to write about him and his story because she wanted to map the traditions between African and African-American cultures. Each time she visited him, she brought him some food and would sometimes go along with him to run errands. She even got 24 minutes of footage of Kosala on her camera. She said in writing the book, it was very important to get Kosala's voice right. This is something I'm definitely going to be discussing more when we go over the text of the book, because that's the first thing you're going to notice about the difference between a book that is more from an anthropologic standpoint rather than reading like a novel. Zora writes... Kosala's dialect, the way that she heard him say those words. Because in anthropology and ethnography, it's about hearing the words of the story, not the accuracy of the language. In keeping true to the way he spoke, she supported his authenticity, which helped him learn to trust her even more with his stories. When the time came to send it out to publishers, they wanted her to change the dialect to make it more accessible for the everyday reader. She said his value did not need to be diluted or translated for white audiences. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. After working with Kosala, she went back to Florida and worked some more for Mason. Florida was special and important to her, and she wanted to show the, quote, Negro farthest down, referring to the black population of Florida. She was studying the men who worked down in Florida, and to get them to trust her, she did something a little more unconventional, yet totally expected of her. She lied and told the men that she was a fugitive on the run, a bootlegger. She was wanted in Miami, and they were on her tail in Jacksonville. They bought it. 
A big part of the lives of the working black men in Florida was the nighttime celebrations. Zora danced and sang right along with them, and they began to really take a liking to her. In return, they shared their songs and stories with her. She wrote to Langston Hughes in July of 1928 that she had been holding one or two story contests in each of the towns she visited. She would start each of the contests by reading some of Langston's poetry to the crowd. They went nuts for the guy's poetry and soon nicknamed the book of poetry Zora read from the party book. She wrote that once when she was reading Langston's work, someone picked up a guitar and started playing. Then the rest of them joined in making music and singing along to her spoken word. She described this moment as glorious. Langston's work really resonated with the men, which was interesting to Zora, as Langston was from New York, yet he could have such an influence on a group of Southern men. This showed her that cultures could be inspired and changed by one another. After that, she went to New Orleans to study hoodoo and conjure. As the daughter of a preacher, she was no stranger to the spiritual realm, And she also had a strong investment in the spiritual life of black people, and women in particular. Learning about her studies of hoodoo and conjure in the PBS documentary was very, very interesting. And I wonder how much of this is actually true, because this seems pretty fantastical. But I'm going to tell you what they told me. They said in her studies of hoodoo, she went through at least four initiation rituals— One asked her to chase down a black cat in the night, boil it in a cauldron, and suck on its bones. Another had her lie naked and fast for 69 hours, which made her experience strange and altered dreams. Then the ceremony ended with the painting of a red and yellow lightning bolt down her back. They say the fact that she succeeded in these rituals was a testament to her resilience. She described herself as being knee-deep in it. During her travels, she had also been collecting love letters that she wanted to put together to make a book about black love. She hid this, like many other more personal projects, away from Mason. While working toward publishing Barracoon, she also published a series of dance songs and tales from the Bahamas to the Journal of American Folklore. In order to properly translate the songs to the rest of the world, Zora practiced each song over and over again and would have multiple different people listen to it and give her critiques before she wrote it down. The journal also published the 100-page article, Hoodoo in America, making her a new American authority on the topic. She also spent much of 1931 working on her play, The Great Day. Mason reluctantly supported this production and bothered Zora about it all the time, but Zora believed that exposing and showing a black drama would do more to conquer racism to a wider audience. On January 10, 1932, it premiered at the John Golden Theater on Broadway. The New York Herald Tribune praised the production as, quote, the real thing, unadulterated and not fixed and fussed up for the purpose of commerce. However, despite the great reviews, no producer picked up the show, which was one of the biggest heartbreaks of her life. She was left bankrupt and had to ask Mason for more help. She was even begging Mason for a new pair of shoes. In the documentary, they read the letter that she wrote to Mason, and it was absolutely devastating to hear. Their relationship soured, and the last check arrived in October of 1932, right before the U.S. was about to meet the Great Depression. Periodic writing at this time barely left her with enough money to survive. 
Also during this time, things went sour in the friendship between Zora and Langston Hughes over the copyright for the play they were working on called Mule Bones in 1934. In the documentary, they said Langston Hughes and Zora were important to one another in every sense, emotionally, aesthetically, intellectually, and when their relationship exploded, they were both profoundly wounded by it. Alice Walker said, A lot of attention has been given to their breakup, but very little to the pleasure Zora and Langston must have felt in each other's company. The book, Zora and Langston, A Story of Friendship and Betrayal, hints at a few reasons for the falling out. One was Zora's jealousy, whether it be romantic or platonic. Two, the relationship between Langston and their beautiful typist. And three, disagreements over the authorship of Mulebone. The author of the book that I referenced, Zora and Langston, A Story of Friendship and Betrayal, Yuval Taylor, sides with Zora in the authorship. I am going to believe that while maybe a relationship with the gorgeous typist would bother her, and I know she had a jealous streak, so I think the friendship most likely ended because they both wanted credit in their writing work. Still needing money, she reached out to the Guggenheim Foundation to see if they would be willing to fund her studies and told them that she wanted to continue her work to continue her work in New Orleans. She wrote to them saying that she wanted to do things her way, which in today's world of anthropology would be described as narrative anthropology, which means the anthropologist is from the community that <clears throat> is from the community in which they're studying. She had asked for letters of recommendation from Franz Boas and a few others who had supported her goals. However, the letters found in her file are extremely problematic. Even Franz Boas, who had been a friend and supporter for years, wrote, On the whole, her methods are more journalistic than scientific, and I'm not under the impression that she is just the right caliber for a Guggenheim fellowship. Damn. Another letter of recommendation wrote that Zora hadn't the, quote, temperament nor the training to present this material in an orderly manner when it is gathered, nor to draw valid historical conclusions from it. There was a separate letter that was added that mentioned that they didn't feel Zora was Guggenheim material. She was also hurt because she didn't have the academic credentials for what Guggenheim usually goes for, and her mentors really seemed to see that that was an issue as well. But they also only really saw, but I feel like they also only saw Zora as a vessel for which they could get their information from. The people in the PBS documentary talked about the inherent biases that a lot of white people feel, both back then and now. And even though Boaz was an anti-racist and did a lot of really wonderful things, he still had that bias, and it was clearly shown in this letter. However, Zora was determined to further her career for herself. She ended up working mostly alone and alienated herself from a lot of people. They said she could be insufferable to work with in many ways. For her next venture, she decided to work in fiction, taking from the stories of her mom and dad in Eatonville. The book became Jonah's Gourd Vine, which was published in 1934. It was published to good reviews, and it was even selected for the New York Times Book of the Month Club. She finished working on her manuscript for Mules and Men, which was an auto-ethnographic which was an auto-ethnographical collection of African-American folklore that she collected in her early forays in the South. She wrote about Eaton and other Florida towns quite a lot in this book, and in the introduction she wrote her reasoning by stating, Florida is a place that draws people. 
white people from all over the world, and Negroes from every southern state, surely, and some from the north and west. This book had a very scientific tone instead of veering toward fiction. She then headed for Chicago in 1934 to stage another production of her play, The Great Day, which she now titled Singing Steel. There, she was approached by the Rosenwald Fund, who offered her a scholarship to pursue a Ph.D., While working toward her Ph.D. at Columbia, she would be able to enjoy her time as a student again and didn't have to worry about money. In preparation, she convinced Boaz that she should do this independent Ph.D., and he agreed. At the time, Columbia was into salvaging indigenous cultural information, but Zora wanted to create a similar study for black culture, which had never been done before. However, the Rosenwald Fund rejected this plan, And instead of the original $3,000 over the course of two years that they were planning on giving her, they offered her a measly $700 for one semester. Zora, never one to take matters lying down, made an appeal. She wrote, This is not to over-persuade you in the matter of the two-year plan. I am not being trained to do a routine job. I am being trained to do what has not been done and that which cries out to be done. Rosenwald replied that, quote, Zora Neale Hurston is like a rough piece of iron that needs to be honed into a fine piece of steel. They insisted that if she were to attend the school, she would follow the curriculum at Columbia or get out. She agreed to the new terms and enrolled, beginning to take classes. But after a few months, she reconsidered her decision as she didn't want to be in another overbearing relationship like Mason's and the others before. In 1937, she published one of her most well-known works, Their Eyes Are Watching God. The story is about a black woman in her 40s who is recounting her life, starting with her sexual awakening. It also tells the story of her formerly enslaved grandmother, Nanny, and their relationship. It explores themes of gender roles, masculinity, and femininity, and it's my next book that I really want to read from Zora. She would eventually work with the Guggenheim Foundation, where she went to Jamaica and Haiti to conduct her research. She published her last novel in 1948, entitled Seraph at the Sewanee, which actually explored the lives of white characters in the South. In it, she discussed the idea of quote-unquote white trash and the gender identity of poor white women at the time. By the time she was 60 years old, she was still working to make ends meet, and she occasionally took jobs as a substitute teacher. She was forced to enter St. Lucie County Welfare Home in Fort Pierce, Florida, where she quickly suffered from a stroke, then died of heart disease on January 28, 1960. She was buried in an unmarked grave in Fort Pierce, and it wouldn't be marked until 1973, when Alice Walker and another went looking for her grave and they found one that was unmarked, deciding it would be Zora's, and had it dedicated to her. At first, she simply wrote in gray marker, Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South, novelist, folklorist, anthropologist, 1901-1960. to See what I mean, how she got the year wrong? Alice said, There are times, and finding Zora's grave was one of them, when normal responses of grief, horror, and so on— do not make sense because they bear no relation to the depth of emotion that one feels. It was impossible for me to cry when I saw the field full of weeds where Zora is. Partly this is because I have come to know Zora through her books, and she was not a teary person herself. But partly, too, it is because there is a point at which even grief feels absurd. 
people have drawn a lot of similarities specifically between Alice Walker's The Color Purple and a lot of Zora's writing as Alice also wrote very similarly with the dialect of her characters. After her death, all of Zora's work was ordered to be burned. I wasn't able to find a whole lot of information about this. And at first when I read that, I was like, it goes all the way to the top. It was like a job that someone came in and like ordered all of her great work to be destroyed. But I think it might just be as sad as the fact that she was alone when she died and living in this welfare home for the elderly when she passed away. And if she had all of her stuff on her, maybe they were like, well, she doesn't have a next of kin or anyone to give this to, and they decided to burn it. But luckily, a friend of hers happened to be there and noticed that there was a fire and went to put it out and was able to save much of the invaluable collection as he could. Most of the collection was given to the University of Florida in 1961 by a friend and neighbor of Zora's, and other materials were donated in 1970 and 1971 by a relative of a friend of Zora's. When Alice Walker read some of Zora's work, she felt like she knew her personally, and reading the book Their Eyes Are Watching God set her on a mission to research Zora and her work. Alice published In Search of Zora Neale Hurston in the 1975 issue of Ms. Magazine, reviving interest in Zora's work. Alice Walker's interest in Zora made others interested in her as well, and her work finally began to be republished in the 2000s. Barracoon wasn't even released until 2018. Alright, now that I've told you so many wonderful things about Zora, I do have to bring it down a bit and mention some of her somewhat problematic qualities. She was a conservative Republican and aligned herself with the, quote, old right. She was against Jim Crow laws, but she was a contrarian when it came to civil rights politics. Some have argued that she would be considered more of a libertarian today. She once stated, I am not interested in the race problem, but I am interested in the problems of individuals, white ones and black ones. She was against the 1954 Supreme Court ruling of Brown versus the Board of Education, I know, take a deep breath, as she felt that educating black students in physical proximity to white students would not result in a better education, but believed that they should be making the segregated schools equal to one another. Her reason for not agreeing to integration is that she would not bow low before the white man. She was also an anti-communist and very anti-government and was very much a centrist. Though I think these are really important matters to discuss, I really understand how she feels about a lot of those topics and understand I don't mean as like an empathetic way. I could never truly understand how she feels, but I feel that I understand it within the context of things that I've learned both about, you know, Black culture throughout my years of doing this show and through life, but also in hearing what Zora felt about her growing up in Eatonville. You know, a lot of these made by and for Black communities that came out of, you know, the Reconstruction era and everything were these vibrant and well-working, you know, towns and communities that were eventually, you know, taken over again by white populations and white people. And I think that she yearned for that space of black excellence in a lot of ways. And she felt that at Howard University as well. So I can understand why she would 
want things to stay separate but improve in order to possibly keep some of that culture sacred and not, you know, integrate it with white culture. You know, it it just made me have to kind of stop and think about what her thought process was behind a lot of that because clearly through her work and her life, she is not exhibiting super conservative ideals and behaviors but I can understand how her belief or disbelief, I should say, in the government and its interactions with the black members of society, I can understand her wanting to keep a distance and not wanting to be integrated. But it is something that is very shocking to hear, and I was very shocked to read it. So I wanted to really kind of flesh that out and explore what that means a little bit, what it meant to Zora in that time. Well, I am just so glad that I had the opportunity to learn about such a vibrant and talented character, and I cannot wait to discuss her book, Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo, with you all on March 2nd. So if you haven't read the book already, go get your Kindle, get it on Audible, get it from your local library, whatever works best for you. Give it a read. It's re- it's a really, really great book. It can be, and I don't want to say difficult to read because I didn't really find it difficult or hard to read at all, but like I said, the way that Zora writes her dialogue is exactly how you would hear Cujo or Kosala speak. And so for me, I would almost kind of like whisper it under my breath as I was reading it because my mouth making the sounds really made the story feel like it came alive to me in a lot of ways. And the book is something that's so different than what I would normally gravitate to on a bookshelf. So I'm really thankful again to uh, Max's sister Haley for leaving it out during New Year's and really Uh, giving me that inspiration to want to have this book be the first one for the book club. In the meantime, if there's anything that you have to say about the book, I really, really would enjoy your participation. So please write me an email at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist and let me know what you think of the book, what you think about Zora's story, so on and so forth, so that I can read it on the next Patreon episode. I want to close out by saying thank you so much for choosing to join me on yet another one of my crazy journeys and adventures. It means so much to me that you are taking the time and the money out of your wallet to listen to more content by yours truly. And I'm really going to do my best to make this the best possible angry feminist book club that I possibly can. I do have some books in line that I want to read, and I've already been receiving some messages from listeners about future books to cover, and I really, really would enjoy more of your book ideas. So please also email or DM those book ideas to me as well. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the first ever Patreon Angry Feminist Book Club episode. With all of that being said, I encourage you to read on. I'll work on that. Hi, listeners. This is Amy from the production team at Realm. Remember the royal wedding? Kind of hard to forget with all those hats, right? Well, what if there was a story about everyone else at the wedding? 
the maids, the bodyguards, the hat makers. All that royal wedding magic doesn't come from nowhere, but these other characters don't get enough time in the spotlight, in our humble opinion. So we created a different type of royal wedding show, perfect for fans of Love Actually. Think vignettes. All of London is abuzz with anticipation of the royal wedding, from the New York paparazzi flown in to catch the money shots to the maids at Buckingham Palace. And every one of them has their own chance at true love. But when the princess bride and her maid of honor go missing, will love prevail? Royally Yours is a fun, flirty, and romantic show that intertwines five love stories that will sweep you off your feet. Be sure to listen and subscribe to Royally Yours wherever you get your podcasts, or learn more at realm.fm.